You're listening to The Film File. Yes, it's the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Coming to you anywhere you want. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Beacon. And Andy's much more alive than I am during this particular recording. Yes. Hanging in, Andy. I'm hanging in. <laughs> we we teased people last week as to like there was something going on this week. I think it's I think we should fill them in on what actually happened yeah. this past week. Um well those yeah. those of you who pay attention on our Facebook page will have seen my uh, wishing Lee a twenty first again birthday during yeah, this week. Yeah, we'll stick it with that. Yep, yeah, 21st. You've got a lot of experience of this 21st birthday now. I think you've got it nailed. And last night was the celebration of his birthday. It was a landmark birthday, the same as I've had a landmark birthday this year. Lee's had a landmark one as well. And I had a great time there because despite the fact I don't drink, I just enjoy the ambience and I enjoy like mingling with people. I get social anxiety, which puts me awkward in most of those places, but it was great to see a few familiar faces that I've got to know through yourself over the years, like yeah. Wes and Andy, um, people who have worked with, like Bob. Um, I had a good catch-up with Bob because uh, not si didn't get a chance to see him 10 years ago at your last celebratory <laughs> birthday. He actually because, wasn't um, there because, because they were the having a child. Daughter. Yes, yeah, birth, uh, their first daughter, and then we got to meet a few other people, including uh, a, a lovely listener out there called Ben, who um, yeah, was was so family. pleased to find out that not only did he get a chance to chat to you there, but um, that I was going to be there as well. So we had a, a good little chin wag about uh, films and all of the films. So um, hi to he's Ben. A, he's our latest super fan. Who Ben even asked for if, whether he could have permission to follow me on Letterboxd. Yes, anyone can follow me on Letterboxd. Just search for Andy Meekin. You can find me. I love to connect with people. And if anyone follows me, I always follow them back because I love to see what films everyone else is watching and rating because I'm, I'm nosy. I'm nosy like that. Yeah. But yet, my social anxiety was not keeping me away last night. And it was a great night. And not only that, but for the first time in years... I got to see you guys play live. Yeah. Uh, well, 10 years, I think. That's <laughs> us play live. That was the start. 10 years ago, I decided to have a midlife crisis and, and get back into music. Uh, and it took off from there. What was going to be a one-off gig ended up being a sort of second, second, third career, really, with the uh, Alice Cooper tribute band. And uh, uh, we did something a bit, bit different last night. We branched out just, well, it was going to be for one night only and played some sort of some glam rock and some rock classics but we sort of decided as we were rehearsing and when we talk about rehearsing about three days before we go <laughs> we better get this done so there were a few moments last night where it was like a nod and a wink to every member in do we end now it's still just when we come in but we're going to do sort of an offshoot band because of alice cooper's uh, other band uh, hollywood vampires we're going to do a our own sort of hollywood vampires which will be a sort of tribute to to those artists that were either left us or just meant something unique in our youth. So mm. that was the plan. But it was great fun. It was great fun. I was just saying, we, when we do the Alice Cooper stuff, you can almost to the point now where uh, we've done that for that many years and the popularity of the band's grown, that it's second nature. However, I forgot one line of lyric last night out of all the new songs, which I'd barely, barely rehearsed. And I forgot the lyrics out of the Alice Cooper set. It was bizarre. <laughs> Concentrate. I printed everything out, put everything on a music stand, but I'd realised I'd printed it so small that I couldn't <laughs> see it from the stage. So it, I never referred to my notes anyway. 
<laughs> it's okay. Every lyric you got wrong, I was singing out in the audience uh, with the correct lyrics. So I, I started to doubt whether I'd got the lyrics wrong or not, but I'm glad to know it was you who got them wrong. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was a good night. It was um, it was a, a late finish. Whenever you play live or you've ever, you know, you have any, do anything that's fun, you get that sort of woohoo adrenaline rush and then it, you come down and I just, I couldn't drop off to sleep. I was so tired. Couldn't drop off to sleep. And because I'm so used to getting up early, woke up early. So today's just been a bit of a, a daze. And I and I don't drink. I had a few more drinks than what I would normally, normally have. Even two or three is more drinks than I would normally, normally have. And then realize that people were buying me doubles. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've just not been in. It's taken forever, Sandy, to keep. It's like poking me with a stick to go, are you ready? Can we do it? <laughs> Yeah, luckily I've got the whole day off today, so there was no rush to get it recorded before I go to work. It was just like when you fit when you're caffeinated enough, Lee, then we'll get yeah. this started. <laughs> Once you feel that you can, uh, I mean, I, I would say get out of bed, but I'm pretty sure that you're just lying in bed recording this at this point. Yes, in time. <laughs> I, I am. They're not in the usual office room, so the ambience might be a little bit different, and that's that's because uh, a everything got thrown into my office room. We've we put on a because my band did it for free last night did it for for friendship but you know they did it for free so we we made did a big buffet for for the guys before we played the gig uh, so everything you know, all the stuff that's left out in the living room to look to look tidy got thrown into the office room and I, I there's no way i can get in and i've got a new mic i got a new mic for my birthday a new podcast mic i had every intention of setting up this new mic and um I have not had the energy. <laughs> so next week should sound even more different in a different way. It was amusing that like we, me and Kerry turned up pretty much on time. Ange met us as we came in and just said, well, he's not here yet. He's running late. <laughs> and my response was like, yeah, that's Lee. And then someone else yeah. turned up and like she said the same and they went, yeah, it's Lee, isn't it? And everyone <laughs> knows that you are always fashionably late, even for your own party. And yeah. that's what we love about you. Um, yeah, yeah. Thank you. It's it's one of my traits. It's it's. I'm politely late. I think to the listeners out there. Whenever I say, "Shall we get this started about twelve o'clock?" Like, yeah, twelve o'clock sounds good, and it's usually twenty past. So I don't I don't yeah. fix myself on a dedicated <laughs> time. It's like I'll lock myself in my kitchen and just browse notes and update some stuff until Lee comes and joins me for our lovely chats that we have the every week. Yeah, yeah. I love these chats because it, we've become quite the institution. <laughs> um, I started a new radio show with BBC this week, and um, whenever I'm on air now, they introduce it as as Lee Ford from the Film File, and it just gives me. I, I'm so proud of what we've done over yeah. this last few years to have built this up, and to get people like Ben, who who was around last night, to say um, you know how lovely things about it, and people passing comments about the show. It's it's testament to the show we put together and, and how yeah. beloved it's become. And, and I, somebody was saying to me that, you know, they said what they enjoyed about the show is it's really well structured. I think that's what elevates us. We we always went in with this idea of putting together a, a proper broadcast as opposed to, especially listening to the first show <laughs> a few weeks ago, uh, that we put a show together which is which feels familiar and comfortable. And if you've been following the show and you're a regular listener, that um, you know you know what to expect, you know, the, the rhythms of the show and that makes it familiar and it's good as well to get feedback from people saying like that they listen to us and we're one of the only podcasts that they listen to and they love to tune in and hear hear us do our updates etc and what we talk about films but it's nice to hear that knowing that we are generally positive 
about the industry. Mm. We are positive about films. Whilst we we've joked that you know if we did a few toxic episodes where we're just like negative about everything we'll probably get loads more listeners but we don't want to be those kind of people because that's not who we are we love film and we love the fact that we've got listeners who clearly love film as well you might not like everything but you never get toxic yeah we, we talk about it honestly we don't like it there's a reason and it's a constructive reason um i don't think we've ever attacked anything and we've never attacked anything. We've always been honest in our, our points of view. Yeah. Um, and that's what good film reviews should be about. It'd be quite so easy to just do YouTube videos where we're just hating on something that hasn't been released because it's A got... clickbait stuff. It, it's got this one person who might be problematic or probably isn't. I've just got a hatred of people in these roles. And it's, it's just not us. Just not us. As much as, I, as much as I joke about my dislike of Zack Snyder, come on, let's be honest... I'm still looking forward to seeing whatever everything that Zack Snyder does. I don't yeah, dislike we're looking Zack forward to Snyder. I don't I, I I don't hate on him. I'm just disappointed with things that he's done. But there's a lot of things that he's done that I'm really impressed with. Yeah. There's no hate involved here, except for Paul Blart Mall Cop, which will never get <laughs> never get reviewed on this show. We'll never, never get, get the love. Dive. We're never having the deep dive of that film on this show. <laughs> So um, last week we set a question in our social challenge, which was okay. the film or a scene which which tugs at the heartstrings, which makes you sort of dab your eyes after you've seen it, water up and, you know, maybe do that thing where you try not to cry. Remember Mike Myers in uh, Wayne's World? Uh, maybe you want to do that. So, Andy, how did we do with our social challenge? I think a lot of our regular um, responders were afraid to admit that they cry at things because uh, we didn't get a lot yeah. of the regulars, but we did get a good scattering from across the board. I'm going to start off with Ben, um, who answered via Spotify. Hi again, Ben. Um, a scene that always breaks me is Tom's sit down with Summer at the end of 500 Days of Summer. It's such a bittersweet moment Ooh, that rounds yeah. off such a beautiful and perfect movie. And Love that film. Yeah, lovely film. I think it's been on the deep dive list for quite some time. We might have to get around yeah, to that at be. some point. Over on X Twitter, Van Connor started the ball rolling with this one. And for sure, I have to agree entirely because this scene in this film reduces me to tears every time I see it. And that's that I have been and always will be your friend. Death of oh, Spock, yeah. Wrath of Khan. I never thought of that. Oh, it destroys oh, good me. one, Van Connor. It, in particular, it's because yeah, that... That's characters that we grew up with. That's characters that yeah. we, we saw that friendship throughout the like reruns that we kept tuning into and then the first movie. And then to be hit with that at the end of there. And I think it's Shatner get, delivers his best acting yes. of all times. I, did, I have read that because they, at that point, believed that Leonard Nimoy had completely left the franchise because he was yeah. getting written out. Shatner drew upon the fact that he was he was effectively losing his friend. Um, yes. No matter where the series was going, he was going to lose his friend, and he drew upon that in order to convey like the sadness and emotion from that friendship that they built up off-screen over the years. And it's such a beautiful moment. Uh, Stevie Dan, 1969, had a scene from the 1993 movie My Life, which he posted a link to from YouTube. I've not seen the film, so I've not followed the link, so no, I can't no. comment on it. So um, I have added my life onto my watch list so I can actually see what it is that sets him off. I'm pretty sure that it's going to set me off anyway because I am a wuss. <laughs> I, I cry <laughs> at everything. This is going to be the easiest week for me to answer because I could just list all of my film catalogue. <laughs> Over on Blue Sky, Dennis Obi 
most of the best Pixar movies, things like Up, Toy Story 3, Coco, and yes, uh, they get me every time as well, Dennis. Uh, Inside Out uh, was mentioned by Met in response to his one, Wally, Red. Pretty much you could throw out any of the Pixar films, and there's always a moment in each of them that makes you start feeling your voice start to break, your eyes start to start to blur a bit, and then you feel that first drop land on your cheek. <laughs> and then you cry. And then you cry. Uh, also on Blue Sky, Lupiot, um, when E.T. returns home. Uh, and, and this is one that I've mentioned before when we've spoken about E.T. in the past, the, that film, it, the last act of that film just toys with my heart all the way through. I start crying when he wakes up again, when he's believed to be dead, and I cry again when he when he does the, I'll be right here. That's it, I'm gone. I am a flooded mess of um, tears down my face. So that's another great choice. Even though we know E.T.'s coming back, the, the scene for me is when um, E.T. dies, even though yes. we know he's going to come back. It's, I mean, with, with, with E.T., it's, it's everything. I mean, Spielberg's marvellous direction, but that beautiful score from John Williams knows exactly which heartstrings it needs to tug at what moment. Over on Mastodon, and this fits in nicely to our deep dive this week, Sean T., Russell Crowe's Maximus floating, dying above the cobblestone road in Ridley Scott's Gladiator, whilst Lisa Gerard warbles and wails to the swell of music. Every time strength and honor indeed and yes 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 having re-watched that film this week yes what a great choice i'm so pleased that someone threw that one in because uh ties in nicely with our deep dive it's almost like we picked the deep dive deliberately but we didn't <laughs> over on facebook helen blair the father broke me i watched it again with ken who's a other half as he didn't see it at the cinema when I went and it broke me again. I don't think it'll be one I'll watch again, even though it was a great film. And this is one that I've said that I won't be going back to revisit. I love the film. It was a five out of five, but it really devastated me watching it. Uh, Patricia Meakin, me good old mumsy. Officer and a Gentleman, the suicide scene. I've not seen Officer and a Gentleman. Don't tell me. Oh, you have never seen Officer and Gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah I, it's it's not one that, that gets me it's not one of those that makes me uh makes me cry but um i can see why i can see why adnan mustafa onwards at the end when he gets to spend time with his dad and yeah i mean again we're back to pixar with how they perfectly managed to capture emotion particularly from a family point of view uh when it's looking at loss and grief and acceptance oh yeah, Onwards was a... I, mean, I remember when we spoke about Onwards way back yeah, when... Yeah, you and I saw it, didn't we? Yeah, and we said that it, it really hit well with that family relationship heart. Helen Blair also threw in The Green Mile, John Coffey's execution, which you remember when we were doing the deep dive, I was almost in tears just talking about that film. Yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, completely. And Mr. Jingles in there as well. Oh, I, I can feel myself welling up already. Lindsay's story agrees with E.T., E.T. will always make me cry, no matter how old I get. The ending of a Requiem for a Dream, never been able to re-watch. The conversation okay. in After Sun, when the father is talking to the daughter about her feeling down, and the look he gives himself and spits in the mirror, like he blames his depression for her being sad. Recently just watched La La Land, never thought the ending of that would break me the way it did. There's one that broke me, La La Land, that broke me. La La Land didn't break me on first viewing, but on the second viewing, I felt myself going. But After Sun... 
I've seen it twice and the first time around it got to me, but the second time around it got to me even more because I knew what the themes that it was tackling was about depression and you know, suicidal thoughts. And man, that it's another one of those films that hits so close to home. Owen Cooper agreed with Aftersun, the shots of Paul Mescal slowly leaving the room scattered throughout the film, as well as his dancing. I also think the perks of being a wallflower has a few scenes that are very sad. And he said that we need to watch this if we haven't already. And the way that Logan Lerman's Char Charlie nonchalantly states that his best friend shot himself a year prior to the events of the film will always stick. And another film that he almost forgot to mention was Manchester by the Sea. I've seen Manchester by the Sea. I saw it at a preview slate presentation day. But I need to revisit it because I, I, I don't, well, I don't think I was sober when I watched it, to be honest with you. <laughs> it, it was on, I think it was on the second day of um, the Slate presentations. And by that point, most of us are still hung over from the night before or still drunk from the night before. And has anybody mentioned that entire opening montage sequence from Up? Uh, well, Up got the mention in the Pixar list, but not specifically that scene. Um, but yeah, that scene, that is just a brilliant piece of filmmaking animation to tell a whole life story with all its sorrows, yeah. ups and downs in one go. That, that was the rare occasion when Pixar actually makes you cry at the start of the film. Yeah. Janet Melling also agreed with Green Mile. Uh, Please, boss, don't put that thing on my face. Don't put me in the dark. Eyes afraid of the dark. Oh, oh, it's the delivery of that line. It's the delivery of that that absolutely breaks you. Uh, Lee Leary agreed with Spock's funeral. And Deborah Davis, another one for E.T. So there's a lot of familiar ones. Tony Earnshaw, good friend of the show, just posted Jack, I swear, which was the final words in Brokeback Mountain. Oh, yeah. And yeah, that's a really powerful moment. I'm going to throw in uh, when all the toys hold hands in the incinerator scene in Toy Story 3. Yes. That, that broke me. Um, Bambi's mom as a kid. Not so much now watching it recently, but as a kid, just that horror of seeing, well, you don't see it, it's off camera, but knowing that Bambi's mom's been shot by hunters. I remember as a kid just being been devastated. I'd never seen anything like it, you know, in a, in a, in a kid's film, uh, a character losing his mom. That that really broke me. I'm still in therapy to this day. One scene that I, I didn't gush, but that my eyes welled, is when Jojo finds his mother hanging yes. in Jojo Rabbit. That's, that, that's, that's got impact, that. Because the way it's done, it's the, the camera knows and the audience knows before Jojo does. Yeah. And it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's devastating. There's there's a movie that gets me every time, and, and I was talking about this the other day, and it's one scene in a film called Fandango with Kevin Cosner, one of his very, very earliest roles. It's the Fandango sequence, mm. beautiful piece of music that accompanies it as well. And all through the, the movie, it's about a road trip uh, of these college grads who, uh, during the 1960s, some of them all go off to Vietnam. Kevin Cosner's a bit of a lad in it. He's sort of a, a bit leery, a bit of a con man. He's the guy who, who keeps pushing them and pushing them. And he keeps dreaming about this girl. Anyway, in, in the scene, he sets up a, a, a wedding in a town. He basically cons an entire town to throw a wedding for his best friend. And it turns out the girl is the girl of his dreams, who's marrying his best friend. And they dance a fandango. Gets me every time absolutely gets me every time i don't know what it is in that scene the music the way that it's shot young kevin cosner at his very best it's just a beautiful beautiful scene knocks me for six every time i see it as i've said i burst into tears at pretty much anything 
I am easily manipulated by films because I just get immersed in them so much. So whether yeah. it's the tears of joy or tears of sadness or tears of trauma, I cry at a lot of things. Um, so rather than reeling off my whole DVD collection, thought I'd just uh, cherry pick out a few. Now, people have already mentioned The Father. I've already spoken about The Father. Dancer in the Dark is a film that I can't bring myself to watch again because of how much that devastated yeah, I'm me. with you on that one. Yeah, that final that. scene of that, I I was just a crying, blubbing mess. It's so, so awfully perfect. Highlander always makes me cry. Oh, does it? What, the, uh, uh, when he... He wants to live forever playing while it's going right. through his life with his his one true love and she's getting old. And uh, I could feel myself welling up right now just <laughs> thinking about the moment. It's just the fact that he doesn't see her as old while she's dying in his arms. And, oh, no, it's just okay. a beautiful moment in a film that is, you know, I love it to bits, but it's a bit of schlock. It's a bit of daft fun. But that moment in that film just really grounds it and really gives it makes you really care for Conor McLeod at that point. Anyone who gets past that point and just thinks, I don't care about this Conor McLeod, you might as well just go and watch Paul Blart Morcom because you're clearly not <laughs> destined to watch good films. Uh, Watership Down always gets me at the end of that. Right. When Hazel is uh, passing away and being taken over, um, being asked to go and join the Owsler. You've been feeling really tired, haven't you? If you're ready, we might go along now. And he looks towards the younger rabbits and realises he's no longer needed for them. They've found a home. He can now die and move on. Oh, I mean, I've, I've always loved the book. I've always loved the animation. Every time I watch it, I feel myself crying my eyes out by the time it gets to the end. Marvel. Everyone always remembers Watership Down saying like, oh, it traumatised me as a kid. But everyone forgets how beautiful it is as a look of like life and death and the acceptance of that it's it's getting a deep dive at some point. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely getting put. Uh, Butch and Sundance freeze framed at the end of Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, then you know yeah. they're they're not not going to make it. Still, still hits me like a ton of bricks every time I watch it. And uh, Zuzu's petals at the end of It's a Wonderful oh. Life. It's a Wonderful Life goes without saying that pretty much all through that film, I can feel myself getting ready to cry because I know what's going to be happening towards the end. I am on the verge of tears right from the start of that film. And it just takes, there's about three points in that film that I break and then I'll recover myself and then I'll break again. And then I'll recover myself and I'll break again. Everything. I mean, from tears of joy at the romance in the early stages to the tears of, tears of sadness, at his realization of everything that he's lost to the tears of joy again as they're all gathered around the Christmas tree and the bell rings. Oh. <laughs> so what makes me cry? Talking about these films on this show is making me cry. <laughs> well, um, thank you to everybody to, for upsetting Andy. <laughs> yeah, you've done us all a, a service. So thank you for that one. Some key moments from television I was going to throw in. Uh, when Fry's dog waits for him from Futurama. Oh, I yeah. I remember that episode. Yeah. Uh, um, when Buffy's mom dies. Oh, that whole episode. Uh, th that was the perfect tackling of how you react at the loss of a loved one. And it, it was the framing of the shots and like the, the, the strange distant behaviours that everyone was doing was so real and so brutal. And we watched that not long 
after we'd lost our daughter. And so we were in tears watching that episode because we could see that same kind of anger or frustration or not wanting to like accept what's happened. It played it beautifully for all his faults and all the negativity that's been thrown towards him in recent years. You can't say that Joss Whedon doesn't know how to tell a good story. And then finally, going back some years, I remember I've only ever seen it once. I've seen the, the scene again, but I saw it as a kid. Uh, and when we realised that Colonel Blake uh, isn't coming back in Ooh. MASH, and I got yeah. the letter, and Radar's reading it out. Oh, it's, it's just saying it is sending chills down my uh, down my spine. Yeah, that's a great choice. I've rewatched most of MASH because I bought the box set during lockdown because I had nothing else to do. Um, and yeah, so it, it, in, a, in something that was generally thought of as like a sitcom, it tackled a lot of issues and really dealt with everything perfectly. And when yeah. it tapped into that emotional core, oh, it delivered with a hard impact of like what war, war isn't fun and should never be fun. Yeah. That's what made that show. And the, of course the film, which we covered way back as a deep dive years ago. Um, it, what, it's what made it so good is how well it just balanced everything. So yeah, a lot, a lot of great suggestions there. We could talk all day about films that have in, impacted us and TV shows that have impacted us. But this week's question, we're going somewhere else. And it's the lines of dialogue that you use every day that comes from a film. So for instance, we're going to need a bigger boat and how, how I use that in so many different ways of expressing when something's too small. So you're going to need a bigger boat. Lines from film that you've adapted into your own syntax that you, uh, you you use all the time that come from a movie. Tell us the line. Tell us how you use it. And you can do that by dropping us a line at... You can contact us via social media channels. Just search for Film File UK. We're on there. Respond to the question on there. Or you can email us podcast at filmfile.uk. And I'll buy that for a dollar. Hey. So what have we got for you? on this week's show well outstanding show as it will be because we are going to be reviewing not one film not two films but a whole bunch of films and two of them andy and i've seen we're going to be talking about marvels and we're going to talk about the killer i'm also going to throw in my review of the new nick cage starring dream scenario from a24 we have a deep dive i'm going back to the year 2000 for the ridley scott film gladiator but before any of that We've got the news, we've got the box office. So, uh, we both saw Marvels, but from what I'm hearing, disappointingly, it's not doing the business. So in the US, the Marvels takes the top spot, only taking 46.1 million over this weekend. The lowest opening for any Marvel film to date. Five Nights at Freddy's holding at second place with 9 million. Taylor Swift in third place, 6.1 million. Priscilla in fourth place with 4.8 million. And Killers of the Flower Moon taking fifth place with 4.6 million. Here in the UK, the Marvels again at the top spot, 3.46 million. It took this weekend, again, a very low result for a Marvel film. Trolls band together, second place with 959,000. Killers of the Flower Moon in third place taking 663,000. Five Nights at Freddy's on 637,000 and Anatomy of a Fall in fifth place with 412,000. The Marvel's opening has been a disappointing worldwide figure of 109 million. A disappointing start for a Marvel film. 
so the Marvels has underperformed, of which there's many factors that you could draw attention to on this. Now, a lot of people out there are saying it's because it's rubbish. But if you look at their profiles, you'll find out that they've never actually seen the film. They're just going by what, well, what Variety told them. Now, whilst a load of people have obviously decided that this film's rubbish and that's why no one's going to see it. And interestingly, a load of those people were using the Rotten Tomatoes score of 51% in order to justify why they're not going to see it, but then ignored it once it got into the fresh rating of 62%. Uh, it's kind of strange how they kind of like move the goalpost like that. But anyone who's ignoring the fact that due to the strikes, the cast have not been able to go out on promotional tours for this are clearly not paying attention. The lack of cast on the publicity trail has clearly had some kind of an impact. Now, we know that superhero fatigue's been setting in, but you can't deny that if you've got new cast, new characters entering into the Marvel Cinematic Universe on big screen, who've only been on the small screen, it could have helped to have had both Tiona Paris and Iman Vellani on the promotional trail on chat shows, in interviews, even just Iman Vellani, because she's so full of enthusiasm. It's infectious. That had helped sell the film to the general audience because it's easy to say, well, not, not many people in the film community are bothered with this. It's like, but the film community only make up about 4% of the movie-going audience. The majority of people don't really know much about things and don't keep up to date with things. And they need the hype and the attention in order to make them interested. Because it's not just about getting them on chat shows. It's about getting interviews with magazines so that can be a front page thing for Empire, Total Film, etc., etc., and sell the imagery of the film. I mean, some negative types online have tried to say that Barbie and Oppenheimer fell under the same ruling and so didn't get impacted. They opened three days after the strike started. They'd already had two months of promotional tours, which were huge. All the cast of both those films were everywhere talking about it with enough time to be able to sell it. So. You can't ignore the fact that there's been no marketing on the film. And then as we got close to the release date, we got that hit piece from Variety, which we covered in detail last week. It's got unfairly treated, I think. But Oh, I, I totally agree. There's the hope that this is another film like Elemental was earlier this year, where the drop-off week on week wasn't large, and it actually generated enough footfall to make some reasonably decent figures by the end of its run. I'd like to think so. Uh, we'll talk more about Marvels when we get to our reviews later. So that's the box office. Um, the news is, it's looking positive. Well, the biggest news this week, on the back of last week when SAG-AFTRA strike was looking like it was coming to an end, everything is back to work. Uh, the board voted to accept the deal that was offered them with 86% approval. Members of the 160,000 strong union will now vote on ratification of the deal over the next next few weeks. But everything is back on the table and everything is greenlit to go back into production. It's a record-breaking contract that has broken new ground and broken pattern again and again. Began this journey as the largest entertainment union in the world and we finish it as the most powerful. Uh, the deal reportedly included a 7% raise in most minimums, a new 40 million residual bonus for actors on streaming shows that reach a certain benchmark of success and more than 1 billion in new wages and benefit plan funding. And it also includes guardrails against the use of AI through digital replicas, although they can still be used if the actors are paid and give permission. Which is a great starting point. Yeah, it's you know, it's an ever-changing landscape out there as technology moves forward faster and faster, be it streaming, be it AIs. 
And it's been essential that all of these deals are being sorted to protect the people who we want to see on the big screen, to protect the background actors, to protect the up-and-comers, to protect everyone within the industry. Great news. So the good news is, is that production will be starting very, very soon. There, there were hints of casting decisions throughout the strike. Now some of those will be confirmed and some productions will be will be ready to go at this stage. Now that the, the writers were back uh, just a few weeks ago, things will be hotting up and we'll be getting some, some major news through in the next uh, couple of weeks, one, one expects. Yes. Uh, what we know about uh, the startups so far is that Deadpool 3 and Gladiator 2, which were both halfway through filming, are set to go back into production within the next few weeks. Uh, Beetlejuice 2 only had two days left to film, so that's expected to finish wrapping pretty soon. Uh, Clint Eastwood's Jura Number 2 has 10 days left to film, and Venom 3 only had two to three weeks worth of filming left to do before the strike halted it. In early 2024, we're expecting to see the third Tron film go into production, the Brad Pitt-led Formula One film, the Mortal Kombat sequel, and the Jason Momoa-led Minecraft movie, and Misha Green's Sunflower and Aziz Ansari's Good Fortune. From DC, James Gunn has confirmed that Superman Legacy was in prep all summer and he's now looking at starting filming in March uh, for a July the 11th, 2025 release. The Batman, The Brave and the Bold from Andy Machete is going to be a bit further down the line, but it's still early enough in development that Machete has focused on the It prequel series for Max Welcome to Derry, which he's going to get nailed and in the can and ready for broadcast pretty soon. And returning services will ramp back up with broadcast TV services going into full prep immediately. Multiple cast and crews have re already received notifications of late November and all early December start dates. The final season of Stranger Things is expected to begin filming within a few weeks. And Noah Hawley's Alien series resumes filming in February. You'll remember that we reported that they were filming around the actor's strike using the non-SAG workers. Um, they're right. now at the stage that they can bring everyone else back in. And hopefully they're still going to hit that early 2025 release date. Other services that are being fast-tracked to return to filming are the likes of The Penguin, The Old Man, Hysteria, Mayor of Kingstown, and Emily in Paris. We're going to see a reshuffling of release dates as a result because obviously there's time factors now being put in place, but everything is starting to get back into operation. It does mean that 2024 might, particularly the first half of it, might start to look a little empty aside from Dune, which we know has already moved from November to March next year. And it's probably good that it did because, well, Marvel, for one, have moved everything. Yes. Deadpool 3, which was originally slated for March and then got shifted to May the 3rd, 2024, is now in the July 26th, 2024 slot. That was the slot that was held by Captain America Brave New World. That's now moved to February the 14th, 2025. Okay, wow. The Blade movie that may or may not exist in some distant future <laughs> has now been pushed from February 2025 to November the 7th, 2025, a full two years away. And the Thunderbolts team-up movie has been moved from December the 20th, 2024 to July the 25th, 2025. So the MCU only has Deadpool 3 out over the next year. Okay. That's that's the first going back way back to the gap between Iron Man and Iron Man Two, and I remember reading in the trades at the time that Marvel was so shocked by the success of Iron Man that they they didn't have anything to go. 
they were developing Captain America and Thor mm. and they had to wait for Joe Johnston to finish Wolfman. So he got drafted onto that before they could do Captain America. Uh, it, it reminds me of that, that particular time for Marvel. Interesting. I mean, there's going to be stuff being announced right, left and centre over the, the next couple of weeks. Um, nobody saw this one coming and that is that Nintendo has confirmed that there's going to be a Legend of Zelda film adaptation with Wes Ball directing, he of Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, which we saw the first trailer for last week. Yeah, um, going to be written by Derek Connolly, who wrote uh, Jurassic the Jurassic World trilogy, but we won't hold that against him because he also gave us Kong Skull Island and Pokemon Detective Pikachu. Uh, we, we've been expecting a Zelda adaptation at some point. We didn't realise it was going to be live action. For those who don't know who Zelda is, what rock have you been living under? It's one of the most popular characters from <laughs> Nintendo. I've never played it, but I still know what it is. The game series follows Link, the courageous master sword-wielding hero of the Kingdom of Hyrule, which also includes the wise Princess Zelda. On his adventures, he clashes with the Dark Lord Ganondorf, who seeks the power of a sacred relic known, the, known as the Triforce. Um, it's going to be co-financed by Nintendo and Sony Pictures Entertainment, Inc., with 50% of it being coming from Nintendo at least. It's It's got a bought-in fan base. They're obviously wanting to follow the success that Super Mario recently had with the other most iconic character. And a lot of the fans out there have been clamoring for Zelda to make its way to the big screen for years. There's so much storytelling within those games. They've got a lot that they can divulge into. So uh, keep my fingers crossed for that one because it could be something could be something really big in the on the horizon there. Absolutely, a, a lot of eager fans. For those people who are disappointed with the lack of Marvel products next year, don't worry, Sony have got your back because uh, they've still got three films coming out <laughs> next year. They've got Madam Web, oh, yeah, we Craven the Hunter, forgotten about. and Venom 3, which Venom 3 has now moved to November. It was originally supposed to be an early summer release. But yeah, don't worry. We've got Sony there to remind us how bad superhero films can be. So when it gets to 2025, we can all be excited to see good superhero films come back. Yeah, when, when we're all saying we've, we've got superhero movie fatigue, along comes Craven. At the same time as there's all this lack of content over the next few months, and given that only last week we were reporting that Warner Brothers had said that Salem's Lot was going to move on to HBO Max because they need content on there, it came as a shock this week to discover that Warner's have now written off another film that was completed. I heard about this, especially after Batgirl. This mm. this seemed an, an interesting choice with a certain amount of the same derision aimed at Warner's as, as was aimed with Batgirl. It's absolutely perplexing because Batgirl and Scoob 2 got written off a year ago for tax breaks and to get some like recom recompense, which means that they will never see the light of day, otherwise it could be considered tax manipulation or fraud. So they're scrapped. And so Warners have now scrapped Coyote versus Acme, which, according to reports, was not only finished shooting, but had finished editing, was completed. Effect shots were all done. It was ready to be released. And unlike with Batgirl and Scoob 2, they can't claim that test audiences didn't like it because it had the highest yeah. scoring results from their test audiences that they've had for family films in about a decade. They've written it off in order to get $30 million worth of tax breaks back. And that's just preposterous because a film like this, even if it underperformed at the cinema, would have made back much more than $30 million, especially 
given that it's got such a good response from the test audiences. Despite the fact that Netflix and Amazon and a, f- a few other interested parties were putting in bids for it and said, we'll buy it off you. Warner's just went, no, we're just taking this 30 million and running. I don't get, what is Warner's doing? I, I do I don't not get, get what's going on. I mean, it, it, it's got Earth to Echoes, Dave Green, who directed the film. James Gunn worked on the story and is an, exec- and is an executive producer. Yeah. It's a live-action animated film about Wiley, E. Coyote, and the Acme Corporation. It's got uh, it's got John Senna in it, who is hot at the moment. Yeah, I don't get it. It's it's absolutely perplexing. Uh, there's been a lot of pushback online about this, and despite the fact that now it's been written off, nothing's going to happen. We're never going to see it. People are basically saying that Zaslav needs to leave because he's clearly a money man. He's clearly an accountant. Yes. He's clearly just looking at the books, and he's not looking at the artistic merit of films i loved the, i remember when we first spoke about this i love the whole concept of wiley coyote is so fed up of all these mm. acme things blowing up on him that he decides to take acme acme to court and it seemed like a great idea and i'm just really disappointed that we're gonna, not going to see it realized it was originally going to be a straight to max film but then because they were so pleased with the test results it was looking to yeah. be that big summertime tentpole release and now no one's ever going to see it Seriously, if you if you don't want to release these films, if you want to make them not to release them, how about just don't make them? How about Warner's just stop making films and let everyone else play with stuff? Because this is just bizarre. David Zaslav needs to take his penny counting elsewhere. Let the movie studio actually be a movie studio and release things. We know that some projects stop halfway through production, but this is a completely different matter when something's actually finished and ready. Why write it off at that point? you might as well put it out there and get some revenue, especially when you're saying we've got no content for our streaming service. Good point. Okay, moving on. Uh, John Malkovich and A.O. Ederberry joined together for a new horror film. Yeah, now that the uh, the strike looks like it's over, hopefully we're going to get into more of these uh, these castings. So uh, you'll know A.O. Ederberry as the breakout star from The Bear, and you know how much I'm loving The Bear. Uh, this is an A24-backed project, and it's called Opus. Yeah, Edda Berry is everywhere at the moment. Uh, she was in Theatre Camp over the summer. She's in Bottoms, which you might still be able to get on UK release at your local cinema on limited shows. Well worth checking out. She's a true, absolute rising star. And it's A24. Of course, I'm going to be there day one. Uh, I love A24 films, in case you couldn't tell. Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon. Zack Snyder's Dark Star Wars, as I'm referring it to it, has got a theatrical cinema release. Now, before you get too excited, it's a very limited one. It's set to play exclusively on 70mm print from December the 15th to the 21st at the Egyptian Theatre in Los Angeles, the Paris Theatre in New York, TIFF Bell Lightbox in Toronto, and the Prince Charles Cinema in London. So if you want to see Rebel Moon on the big screen, it's going to be a trip down to one of those locations for the exclusive 70 millimeter prints. Now, this is one of the examples where I say that, you know, I, I don't hate Zack Snyder because showing something in 70 millimeter print, it's there's some prestige to that. And I love the fact that he's supportive of that. I know that a lot of fans are wanting him to do a general release of the film on the big screen, but it's not going to happen. He's making them as exclusive events. They'll have a one week run before it lands on Netflix on December the 22nd. We've not entered into uh, Pinch of Salt Corner for some time. Um, but we're going to enter into it right now because Eternals, yes, Marvel's other massive great flop, has been rumoured to have a sequel. 
in the works. I think that fits quite nicely into Pinch of Salt corner for now, don't you? Yeah, it gets speculated quite frequently. Um, Marvel have not been very committal on anything post-Eternals. I mean, all the events of the Eternals seem to have had no impact on the wider MCU. And the fans are kind of questioning, why are we not seeing half a celestial body hanging out of the earth on any shots ever since? It's like they've kind of like put it to one side. Or maybe all the events in the films that we've seen are all taking place more or less at the same time, like what the Phase 1 did. The Phase 1 only took place over a week. We don't know. But every now and then the story comes around that the Eternals aren't done with yet and we might see them again. Whether we'll see them soon rather than later remains to be seen because we're still waiting for Blade and it's still not here. Let's just keep it in Pinch of Salt Corner for the moment. What doesn't need to be in Pinch of Salt Corner is the Wikiverse. Yes, Chad Stahelski has confirmed that the John Wick franchise is expanding yet again with a new live action and a new anime series currently in the works. Okay, I didn't know this one. He was speaking with the Discourse podcast this week. He discussed further John Wick television projects beyond the more recent Continental miniseries, which Stahelski himself was not actually involved in. Uh, But he says he will be more hands-on with a completely separate live-action series that he's developing to expand the characters and world-building of that universe. The series will explore the high table a little bit, And he advises that they will never show the whole high table. He likes to keep some mystery. And it will also allow for an exploration of side characters. And he think, in his words, I think TV is a better format for that. He's also confirmed the John Wick anime project is in the works alongside this live action series. We're really looking forward to that. We're really excited about it because we're doing that and a Japanese anime because I love Japanese anime so much. So to create all the cool stories that anime could achieve better than we could on the TV show to expand our world, we still got our fix. You know what I mean. And we'll still have all the fun. Darren Aronofsky, who's been attracted to stories of, well, the extreme, is about to do a biopic of Dr. Evil. Uh, (laughs) Yes, for A24. Oh, sorry, I misread that. He's going to adapt the Elon Musk biopic for A24. Yes, I read this one as well. And I can't think of a director who's better suited to tackle the complex individual that is Musk. <laughs> the film's going to be based on Walter Isaacson's authorised biography, which was published in September this year. Isaacson's biography on Steve Jobs served as the basis of Danny Boyle's 2015 film. So it's kind of in good hands story-wise. It's A24 who are behind the scenes on this one. They won the title in a heated competition to option the book. It could be a fascinating story of uh, the world's most notorious real-life Bond villain. <laughs> because he is a Bond villain. <laughs> When he was putting all those satellites for communications things up in the sky and everyone was cheering, I was like, this is Bond villain level metal of ministry. Yeah, yeah. What's he going to do with this? He, in he's future? got a button. They're all going to connect. It's he a lives in a volcano. It's, <laughs> it's an interesting partnership. It's an interesting story. Whether you like Elon Musk or not, there's a lot that can be explored into this character, I want to say, to be nice. Yeah, yeah. Leave it there just in case their lawyers are tapping in. Yeah. We know, we know what he's like with uh, banging laws, lawsuits on people. So let's quickly move on to Terminator franchise is coming to Netflix with an anime series created by animation studio Production IG, who gave us Ghost in the Shell. Interesting. It's going to be set in a future and a past. The future is 2022, which feels like the past to us, but it's the future of the Terminator franchise where the future war has raged okay, for decades between the human survivors and an endless army of machines. 
Back in 1997, the AI known as Skynet gained self-aware and began its war against humanity. One soldier is sent back to 1997 to help change the fate of humanity. Is it Elon Musk? Possibly. It might tie in nicely with Aronofsky. <laughs> the soldier arrives in 1997 to protect a scientist named Malcolm Lee who works to launch a new AI system designed to compete with Skynet's imp impending attack on humanity. So this is playing AIs against AIs and the possibility that Skynet can be taken down by something similar to itself. Anime is probably a good approach to take this in. Could be fun, could be vibrant. And from the guys who gave us Ghost in the Shell, it should be visually spectacular. Greta Gerwig, hot off the success of Barbie, has been working on adapting C.S. Lewis's classic fantasy novel series, The Chronicles of Narnia, which is targeting a production start date in 2024. And the reports have it that it's not going to be an adaptation of one of the books or two of the books. She's making two films that are going to encompass the whole seven books. Oh my goodness, that's brave. I think that some of this might be misreporting, and I think that it's going to take elements yeah. of themes of all the books, because anyone who's read the book series knows that it's a bit disjointed chronologically, and characters will be in one book, but then won't be in two books after it, and then they'll come back. So I think it's going to draw on the overall themes of it, telling one set of stories from within the books, leaving it open to tell more stories alongside it at a future date. We'll know more as it gets closer, but Gerwig, I've got confidence in. She's, I mean, after all, she's just made the most money on a doll film that you would ever have imagined. So we've got some trailers, we've got some TV trailers, and we've got some movie trailers that have landed this week. Going through them from top to bottom, we've got, and top to bottom is, is very apt for this next one. See what I did? It's a segue. We've got Kevin Hart, who must pull off an in-flight heist in the new thriller Lift. Uh, the trailer landed this week. I've not had a chance to see that one. There's something about Kevin Hart that just, I don't know, it just, it just, I'll watch his films when they come out, but I won't get excited enough to watch the trailers. We've got Tina Fey returning for the Mean Girls first trailer of the musical, which, interestingly enough, didn't give much away in the fact that it's a musical. It's like they're trying to hide the fact it's a musical. This is like when you get a foreign yeah. language film released in the UK that's going to be subtitled. And they, they have someone just utter the one English line of dialogue in it to convince people that it's not going to be subtitled, only to surprise them. Yeah, I watched the Mean Girls trailer. It looks very Mean Girls. It looks yeah. as fun as Mean Girls. But I, I know this is the musical version, and I'd like to know more about the musical elements. I'd like to know more about the show pieces. Watching it the second time around, you can see some of the more showy numbers taking place. But they're very careful not to post it as a musical. And I'm wondering if this is because mm. Matilda the musical didn't blow the box office apart like they were expecting. The two big ones for this week are Ghostbusters Frozen Empire. That looks good. Yeah. So all the new generation are back in New York. It looked a lot of fun. Yeah. And it looks it looks something almost different for Ghostbusters as well. Yes, I thought that. The biggest surprise on it was seeing Bill Murray in there again because I didn't expect mm. him to come back again. But he's clearly, he's clearly enjoying it enough to reprise his role again and again. We, we knew that Dan Aykroyd would pop up because he would pop up in anything that has the Ghostbusters logo on it. Anyway, I could slap a Ghostbusters logo on my fridge, open it up, and Dan Aykroyd would be sat inside it. But Bill Murray was always going to be a, well, he's done his one. He'll walk away now. So I'm, I'm quite pleased to see these back because that means that there's something to the film. And then we got Inside Out 2. Uh, and this teaser brings a new emotion into Riley's head. 
I could go off on a rant on this. Um, I'm going to keep it no, short. Go on then. No, all right, a short rant. Where was this anxiety emotion in the adult characters that we saw when we saw inside their minds in the past film? It seemed that even animals only had these original set of emotions. Why is anxiety now suddenly a thing? Where was it when people grow up? Are we st do we suddenly stop being anxious when we're adults? Because I'm sorry, I stay anxious all the time. <laughs> so I should still have anxiety in there. And isn't anxiety just another alternate version of um, fear? I'll enjoy it. Let's be honest. I'm just I'm just nitpicking yeah. for the sake of nitpicking. But you know, if they're going to branch off like having like different emotions, now branch off into other variations of them. When are we going to get the slightly miffed, which is like a lesser version of anger, or may or maybe the oh I'm tickled for a, a new version of joy? I don't know. <laughs> There's the future sequels. Three, four, five. I'll give you all the side emotions that you want. But it's going to tackle. It's going to tackle that pubescent era, which that's where anxiety comes into it, because that's when your social consciousness goes through the roof and you start to feel anxious at everything. It looks like I, it's going to be fun again. I wasn't sure they needed a sequel for Inside Out, but I, after seeing the trailer. It looks like it'll work. Yeah, and I think they could almost stay with this character uh, as she moves through a life and new emotions crop up. Another trailer that I saw this week is Damsel which is the new Netflix film with Millie Bobby Brown mm. as a princess who finds that her in-laws-to-be plan to sacrifice her to a dragon, uh, but she doesn't plan to go down without a fight. And it looks, looks pretty good. It looks pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, I got very excited by the new trailer for one of my favourite series. We'll enter the list of one of my all-time favourite series, uh, Slow Horses Season 3. I still need to jump on that. Any more trailers? Uh, Masters of the Air, uh, Austin Butler flies in Steven Spielberg's new war drama series. Oh, this this is this has been tackling Band of Brothers kind of territory all over again, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, looks as classy as one would expect. And then I had a heck of a good time with the first season and the season two trailer brings back Alan Richardson as Reacher. And that is this week's news. <laughs> As we said right at the beginning of the show, this is a show that, that loves film. And if you love film as much as we do uh, and you haven't subscribed, then if you want to love us that little bit more, please subscribe to The Film File. Help us get our figures way up there so we can attract even more bigger and better sponsors. And all you have to do is head over to your favourite podcast platform, Check out the film file, hit the subscription button, and remember to leave a like. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so by doing just this. Head on over to social media platforms, look for Film File UK, and follow us. Uh, we love to engage with people about films. Follow me on Letterboxd, search for Andy Meakin. You'll find me on there. Follow me, I'll follow you back. We'll keep in touch about what films we both watched, and uh, you can comment on my reviews if you want. Let me know whether you agree with them. You can also get in touch with us directly. Podcast at filmfile.uk is the email address to send stuff to. Or if you've got a carrier pigeon, send it to Sheffield. We'll intercept it. I might eat it. Can't promise anything. Any, any way that what you want to talk to us about film, we're always happy to engage as anyone who's ever met any of us in public will soon find that they can't get away from me for at least 15 minutes while I rattle off tales of various films that I've watched. It's now time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. We're going back to the year 2000. We're going back to Ridley Scott's historical drama epic. It starred Russell Crowe, Requiem Phoenix, Connie Nielsen, 
and it is the film Gladiator, in which Crowe portrays Roman general Maximus Decimus Meridius, who is betrayed when Commodus, played by Phoenix, the ambitious son of the emperor, murders his father and seizes the throne. Maximus is reduced to slavery and Maximus becomes a gladiator and rises through the ranks of the arena to avenge the murder of his family and his emperor. They took everything he loved. Promise me that you will look after my family. Your family will meet you in the afterlife. Destroyed everything he was. I'm a slave. What possible difference can I make? Now, every day he lives, they grow bolder. He will return. Today I saw a slave become more powerful than the Emperor of Rome. And a hero will rise. Russell Crowe, Gladiator. I didn't know until we started researching this was actually based on a 1958 book, Those About to Die, formerly titled The Way of the Gladiator. The script, uh, written by Dave Franzoni, was acquired by DreamWorks, and Ridley Scott signed on to direct the film. The cast also included Oliver Reed, who died of a heart attack before production was finished, and was one of the first films that oversaw a CGI effect that gave the element of creating digital body doubles for the remaining scenes involving his character Proximo. It was one of the biggest successful films of the year behind Mission Impossible 2. Critics praised it, loved the acting, made a huge star out of Russell Crowe and it won five Academy Awards. But Andy, did we like Gladiator? As simple as that. As simple as that. Were we entertained? Thumbs up or thumbs down? It gets a thumbs up over here. I remember when it first came out, I was I was entertained. I enjoyed it, but I didn't buy into the hysteria around it. It wasn't the best epic film ever made that most people were saying. It was drawing, you know, it was basically a modern day, a modern day attempt to bring back that sandals epics of like Spartacus years and Ben-Hur. And yeah. that, that's what Ridley Scott says his influences were when he made the film is like Spartacus and Ben-Hur. He wanted to capture that kind of feel. But I was nonplussed at the time, enjoyed it, but didn't love it. But it was on revisits that I started to get more and more into it and rewatching it this week, which was the first time in like 15 years that I've rewatched it. And I more or less watched it with fresh eyes. And now I can see what everyone loved so much about it at the time because it holds up so well. And it holds up so well because of the cast more than anything else. Interesting to note that this was this went into production with an unfinished script that changed day by day on shooting, resulting in a lot of the production and the cast arguing and being disgruntled with the writing quality. Very troubled production was then presented with the additional problem when Oliver Reed passed away, which resulted in more rewrites and complications for production. But the result was a film that made a huge dent in the box office, $500 million taken worldwide on a $103 million budget, and has long been considered one of the best epics of our time. Russell Crowe, Joaquin Phoenix, absolutely central to the whole thing. The pair of them lend heavyweight performances, lifting the somewhat trite dialogue into something with weight, menace and impact. Joaquin Phoenix cannot be understated in this film. He is a force. He is menacing. He is terrifying. He is absolutely perfect. I found it hard to suddenly believe that this film was 23 years old. Mm. And it still feels very, very fresh. I was blown away by the epic nature, of course. CGI was still in its infancy and the idea of CGI sets was still relatively new. Yeah. And so we got that sort of very artificial looking role, but it looked fantastic. It almost looked like a painting and a lot of the film 
was influenced by by paintings. I recall at the time of it coming out that there was articles about the production of it and the CGI in particular because there was a huge focus on it. The Gladiatorial Arena, the Colosseum, like was a full CGI creation with thirty two thousand rendered people. And I remember reading somewhere that they worked out that to develop the technology to give Rome that CGI look and the Colosseum that CGI look, it cost them more than it would have actually cost them to build the Colosseum itself and have a physical (laughs) set. But that's to ignore the fact that the technology that was developed in order to make this look so spectacular was then used for other films. And so that writes off some of the cost. You know, it's they don't just like remake this technology for every film. Once something's been developed, it then goes on to benefit productions yeah. going forwards. But I remember when it first came out, I was maybe I was being too over picky when I first watched it because I started spotting problematic elements within the Colosseum. The, the members of the Colosseum crowd that looked like they were just on a five second loop of putting the fists in the air and like it, it was it was looked like a yeah. bad gif. I could spot them, but rewatching it this week. I could still see them occasionally, but I realized that I needed to focus on what was actually happening on the Colosseum floor and ignore the background detail and just let myself immerse in it. And it was easy to just go, you know what? The rest of it holds up well. I'll focus on the story. And that's how I think I connected with it better this time because I've ignored the little minor nitpicks that I had on those early watches. Uh, I mean, the action sequences, the set pieces are all spectacular and that's what Ridley Scott does he has this unique eye of focusing on the small detail in massive massive sets Mm. and it feels it feels like an epic film as a throwback to movies like Fall of the Roman Empire and and Spartacus and and I know they were influenced on the film it's it's a trite story it's a very slim story it works because we buy into it and we buy into it because Russell Crowe works it was at that point didn't have any of the baggage that he's brought with him from anywhere else in his career and brought forward. He was a, a tawdry force on screen. He had a physicality about him at that particular time. And if you bought into Crow, then you bought into the film. And that's why it works, because he is at the heart of that film all the way through. The story is about him and his presence is spectacular. And this is what made Crow an international star. For all the knocks he's got later on in his career, yeah. you go back and watch this film and you go, look at that performance. Look at that screen presence. I know that Crow was reported as saying that his lines were garbage, but I'm the greatest actor in the world and I can make even garbage sound good. And it's true because everything that he gives comes across in the delivery more than what he's actually saying and makes a lot of his lines iconic. According to uh, Crow's speaking about the film, in hindsight, uh, he used to walk off set after arguments about the dialogue if he didn't get an answer for what he was doing. And this is kind of the, the sort of start of him being known as a volatile actor and a troublesome person yeah. to work with. Um, but everything that he was saying, apparently, was for the benefit of the film because when they started shooting, they had 32 pages of script, which was cobbled together and didn't really work. And so all of his arguments and volatility was to basically say, look, we should be we should have this more structured. This needs to be better. And it was just frustrating him. It benefited the end result, definitely. But he got the part because the studio campaigned for him when Antonio Banderas turned it down. You can tell that it was clearly initially developed for Antonio Banderas because it's a Spaniard who's part of the Roman Empire. And Banderas was on a high at that point in time. 
But after Banderas turned it down, whilst Scott was looking at people like Tom Sizemore and even Tom Cruise, it was Crow's standout performance in LA Confidential that made the studio go, no, this guy, this is who we need. And I can't, looking back on it, I can't think of a better choice. Uh, Jude Law auditioned for the role of Commodus, uh, but Scott had only one actor in mind, and that was Aquarian Phoenix. Uh, Jennifer Lopez was reportedly lobbying for the role of Lucilla, but lost out to Connie Nielsen. And of course, we had some fantastic character actors, Richard Harris, uh, and Oliver Reed, uh, Derek Jacobi. I mean, Jacobi's no stranger to Roman epics, given that he w- he played Claudius in I, Claudius. Uh, that's always worth checking out, folks. Yeah. Jimon Hansu, again, lending that, that fantastic screen presence that he brings in everything that he's, he's in uh, and sometimes gets lost in, in movies like Guardians of the Galaxy, for instance, but he's always, always uh, at the heart of every film. Watching it again, yes, it does have problems. Uh, it slows down in some of the wrong areas uh, when you need it to build up, but it still feels fresh and it still feels exciting. And in, even more so, especially with the way that special effects have grown since then, it still feels spectacular. Yeah, it, it's, it looks and holds up pretty strongly. It's interesting that it's loosely based on real events and that Scott had historians on set and throughout the development of it to help guide him on it. But a few of the historians walked off because there were some elements that Scott went, no, that sounds ridiculous. We're not including that. Including, and this was a bit of trivia that I never realised, apparently gladiators used to be sponsored. They used to carry endorsements. Really? Yep. Um, and when it was suggested by one of the historians that, that all the gladiators, as they become more famous, get more and more sponsorships and they should be reflecting that on their shields and armour and things. And Scott went, that sounds ridiculous. We're not using it. And that's what caused some of the historians to go, well, if you're not going to listen to us, we're quitting. But I think Scott made the right decision because whilst, yeah, I didn't know it and the general public wouldn't know it and they would think it would be an anachronistic thing when it actually wasn't. Yeah. So it, because of how Hollywood has taught us Roman Empire looked, we won't accept how the Roman Empire looks. It's like the whole thing of like Roman statues are always white. When they wouldn't have been white, they used to paint them in like garish colours. Yet in this film, yeah. all the statues are white. It's only because the paint has worn off over the centuries that we see them as white these days. They're the kind of elements that are fictional, that the historians hated the fact that Scott was going for. But at the end of the day, he just wanted to make a film that was exciting, dramatic, heartfelt, drawn from history, but not beholden to it. In Gladiator, he certainly achieved this. Uh, it made a big star out of Crow, as we said. And it gave Scott a chance to to look at other sort of historical epics after this. It, Scott goes through these trends. For instance, you look back at when he was doing sci-fi with mm. Aliens and Blade Runner and, and, and Legend. And then he did sort of uh, more down-to-earth cop movies. And then he goes through, uh, through other twists and turns. And for a time, that was Scott's influence. And now he's back doing a sequel to Gladiator. 23 years later. Yep. Will Gladiator 2 have the same impact next year? Only time will tell. But in the, at this point in time, when it comes to watching Gladiator, I'm certainly entertained. If you haven't seen Gladiator, and you really should, Andy, how can you check it out? I believe that it's currently showing on Netflix and also on Sky, Now TV, movies, channels. Well worth checking out. I don't know whether that's the original cinematic cut or the re-edited with extra 24 minutes extended versions. But either version is worth seeing. I've seen both versions of them. And to be honest, I didn't notice what was extra in the longer cut because it all felt like it it all felt like it benefited it anyway. So check out whichever version you can. And we'll be back next week 
with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. So Andy and I have managed to see two films that we can both talk about. Andy and I were in a cinema together watching a film. Andy, where do you want to start? Should we start with Marvels? Let's start with the Marvels. We are at war. Captain Marvel, we need you to save the world. Then let's do this. You took everything from me. So we want to fight? You come up, protect your people. Watch me. Marvels. Brie Larson returns as Captain Marvel in this near DeCosta directed film alongside Monica Rambeau, who we met in WandaVision, and Miss Marvel, played with such energy by Iman Balani, whose powers have become entangled just in time for a new threat. Yes, the Kree and Darben are kicking butt, but our Marvels are there to take it on. So we know there's been a recent run of disappointments within the Marvel Universe, people citing that Marvel have lost their touch after Endgame, therefore forgetting about Spider-Man No Way Home, uh, Shang-Chi, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, just to name a few. Yeah. And this film has had its fair share of knocks before anyone's had a chance to see it. Is it because... It's directed by Nia DeCosta, who brought us the really well rebooted and reconceived Candyman. Is it because it stars Brie Larson, uh, Tayona Paris, and Iman Vellani, and there are no real strong male characters in it? Makes you wonder, Andy. But what I do know is both you and I had a really good time at this admittedly silly but downright fun film. Oh, yes. I've been saying to people all week when they've asked me what I thought of it, that it's it's a bit of a mess. It doesn't give you any time to breathe. It jumps straight into action and then just races along from place to place with frenetic fury. But I'd be lying if I said I didn't have a big beaming smile on my face for the whole one hour 40 of it because it was an absolute blast of a film. It was energetic. It was fun. It was what I want blockbuster entertainment to be. The cast were really gelling well. The essential trio of Carol Danvers, Monica Rambeau, and Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan, played by Brie Larson, Tiona Paris, and Iman Vellani, absolutely gel together as the perfect central trio. Carol's coping with past trauma, trying to tap into her memories, but realising what bad things she did when she was under Cree control and how she basically eradicated most of the Cree at the end of it. Monica is coping with a sense of abandonment uh, after feeling that everyone who she loved had just either died or forgotten about her. And Kamala is just fangirling out and solving everyone's emotional crisis with a hug, which results in them bonding perfectly in a great mid-film moment of montage training that is fun to watch. And by the end of it, they are a dynamic team. One is the strength. One is the brains, and Kamala is certainly the heart. It's a perfect trio that work in unison, and they play together so well. And the, the stars who are portraying those roles are so immensely likable that you just can't help but be swept up by it all. I, I'll, I'll point out that it does have a few problems. Uh, it does zip along at a fair old pace, and the energy is fantastic. 
Occasionally, I wanted it to take some breath. I don't know if that was a decision made in editing or there were recuts of the film, but I wanted it to take a bit of a breath at the beginning uh, and find its feet. That's a small complaint because this is it is has been after everything that Marbles has been set up about the worst film that Marbles ever that Marbles produced so far, the shortest, the uh, lowest budget, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's a much welcome surprise and a good shot in the arm. You know, people complain about Marvel doing the same thing time and time again. And when they do something different, then they get slated for doing something different. And this is different. I would go as far as to say that this is Marvel's Barbie. All the males out there who've not been to see this because Marvel shouldn't make these films are ignoring the fact that this isn't particularly aimed at them. This is this is aimed for the female market. This is aimed for teenage girls and young girls to have heroes that they can recognize on the big screen and they can embrace. And if the rest of us enjoy it as we go along, the same way with Barbie, Barbie wasn't necessarily designed for us 50-year-old males, but if we can embrace it when we're watching it and realize the joy in it, it's just another another benefit for the whole production. This was the most fun I've had in a Marvel film for the last few films, aside from Guardians 3. Since this Ragnarok, really. Yeah. I said to you after, after it finished that this felt like the most comic book film that Marvel have done because of the pacing of it, because it jumps straight yeah. into the action. The villain is slightly underdeveloped. Uh, Zawa Ashton playing Dar Ben doesn't feel like it. she Does has enough best. to her, but there's enough seeds of why she's doing what she is for you to connect with and realize in, in the past marvel would have spent an additional 40 minutes with backstory for this character 40 minutes that would have maybe slowed the film down too much and maybe they could have gone for some kind of an extra 10 minutes 15 minutes this is the first time that i've actually said that maybe a marvel film could do with a bit more in it just to like you say give it some breathing space to like give us some time to like let the let the story settle but there's enough there to just have fun with and yeah, it's fast paced. It's comparatively short. And for one hour 40, you can't really go wrong. This is a team up story aimed at a different kind of Marvel audience. This is where you take your teenage daughters to and they will get female bonding story. And that is perfect antidote to everything that we've seen across countless superhero films where you get the one female character who's part of the team. Even as much as I love Avengers, there's only one female character in it. There are no significant, other than Nick Fury, mm. and even he's a small part of the story, no significant male characters, because you know what? Doesn't need them. It's about this bunch of girls proving it doesn't matter what gender you are to be heroic. And I love that. Yeah, I, th I thought that was so refreshing. So refreshing and fun. And I need to give special mention out to Kamala Khan's family, played by Zenobia Shroff, Sagar Sahik, and um, Mohan Kapoor. Uh, her family dynamic, which we saw so beautifully in the TV series of Ms. Marvel, is given even more joy on the big screen as they're reacting to this strange chaos that is invaded into their life as Carol Danvers just pops up out of the blue. Comical relief is fantastic. It doesn't feel like it overdoes the comedy, unlike, say, Thor, Love and Thunder, which felt like it was trying to shoehorn a joke every 30 seconds. The, the humour in this seems to come along naturally from the charm of it, and that charm is all Kamala Khan. Kamala Khan is the 
character to go and see this film for, if nothing else. Even if you weren't a fan of Captain Marvel and you thought Brie Larson's take on it wasn't good, ignore that. Go in to watch Iman Vellani and you will swiftly start to love everything that's going on. One sequence got to, got to mention, who would have ever thought we were going to get a song and dance sequence in a Marvel film? And it worked perfectly and it was bold, it was odd, and it was a lot of fun. Ignore what you're hearing, especially from male commentators. Go and see this film because put everything aside that, you, that that's been fed to you. This is a hugely entertaining film and it's witty and it's clever and it's silly and it's got one of the funniest needle drops in the Marvel Universe today. And in a little over 100 minutes, this is how a good superhero film can be different and still give you everything you want at the same time. Yep. Right, Andy, give us something uh, before we talk about The Killer. So I've also seen this week, it's landed at cinemas this week, it's from A24, it's got Nicolas Cage in it, and it's called Dream Scenario. Have you been dreaming about me? How does it feel to go viral? I wish I was the one people were dreaming about. Why me? Uh, I don't know, I'm special, I guess. So I'm finally cool, huh? <laughs> You're playing with fire here. Fame can come with some less desirable side effects. You should be prepared for that. Paul Matthews, played by Nick Cage, is a rather forgettable and average family man and a professor of biology who's always had an idea for a book on his theories, but never seemed to get around to writing it. However, when he suddenly begins appearing in the dreams of people around him and farther afield, he becomes an overnight celebrity. In the dreams, he appears as a bystander, watching but not acting on the events of the dreams themselves. As his fame grows, he finds his personal life under threat, and soon his dream self changes, becoming more menacing and sinister. Genuinely amusing, whilst also traversing into darker territory with deafness, Dream Scenario is a perfect fit for Cage, with him adopting a similar slouched humbleness as he did when he portrayed Charlie Kaufman in adaptation. His character Paul is a seemingly happy man, mostly content with his life, but he harbours a grudge against old friends who've gone on to success in publishing, especially as he feels that they used his ideas to get to their fame. The film's trajectory plays into Paul's desires for fame and jealousy of others, with the dream self starting to get more and more sinister as Paul's frustrations start to build. Cage not only sells the real-life Paul with a stooped, reserved demeanour, but taps into the crazy Cage for the dream visions later in the film, where the actor simply seems to be having fun. Writer-director Christopher Bogel crafts a smart, funny and wonderfully weird film, which serves as an allegory of the experience of fame, how a quick rise to popularity can swiftly turn the other way when darker secrets are exposed, as well as the fickle nature of pop culture and internet celebrity. The dream sequences are witty, inventive and positively disturbing in some cases. Ari Aster served as one of the producers on the film and you can detect a hint of his input whilst never feeling the complete shadow of it takes away from Borgil's creativity. Dream Scenario is another A24 release that serves to give me more reason to continue to seek out their content. And it's a fierce contender to be on my top films of 2023 list at the end of the year. With a great cast, a bizarre concept and a scene that goes to prove that the fart gag will never get old. This was a dream of a film. And then finally, Andy and I have got to see another film that we can both talk about. And it's David Fincher's brand new film starring Michael Fassbender, Tilda Swinton. And it is the killer. If I'm affected, it's because of one 
simple fact. I don't give up. This is what it takes. Michael Fassbender plays a killer for hire. Familiar territory. He lives his life in the shadows, but when a job goes wrong, he's got to consider and forced to take revenge on his employers one by one. From by that, you would consider we're in familiar territory. And, and yes, we are, but we have it with David Fincher, who always manages, even in his most generic films, always has a particularly dark side to him. And it's good to see him bring his dark side back. It's a, It's got a, an amazingly suspenseful opening sequences. Mm. The film is compromised into chapters. Michael Fassbender should have been Bond. I think he's too old now, but I should have been Bond. And it's got some uh, some great needle drops. But it is familiar, Andy, and that kept coming to mind all the way through. On paper, this could have been an all-out John Wick-style action fest. But in the hands of Fincher, it is lent a, a neo-noir approach. The voiceover from Fassbender divulging the killers in a monologue and his mantra, which is a lie, needs to be stated throughout the film. He's in a monologue, just like talks about what he does and why he does them and how he's cold and he doesn't get connected to things. Works to draw us into the mind of what should be an unlikable person and see how he keeps his emotions in check, even when he's in danger of being overwhelmed by them. It's a great way to explore the dual nature of someone who makes a living killing people with a non-judgmental eye on the assassin. In the same way that last week when we spoke about a monster calls is like all the stories about the dual nature of man and a good man can do bad things and vice versa. This is the perfect film to follow that with because this is a, a good man who does bad things but tries to convince himself that he's not actually getting connected to them when inside he knows he really is. I found myself fascinated by it. I was drawn into it. And yes, there was a lot of things that I found familiar. You know, had it played out as a John Wick kind of like action, 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 I think it would have just been trite and formulaic. But it's just given so much more weight to it by the approach and by Fincher's beautiful skill at direction. He knows how to set up a shot. He knows how to get things lit. He knows how to make things look beautiful and intense. And there is one standout action sequence within the film that becomes almost John Wick-esque, but with a, a more clumsy brutality to it. Uh, and that's when he's taking on the brute. It's a, I found this was a, a nice cold thriller that drew me into the mind of a complicated individual and kept me surprised right up to the end. Uh, and I agree. And I think, you know, the themes of this have uh, about playing into what it's like to be somebody who's who, who basically has lost their soul and how much that, uh, what the cost of that is. And I think nowadays you can't help but draw comparisons with John Wick. Uh, mm -hmm. And so for some, uh, not for not for me, and by the sounds of it, not for you either, the, that aloofness to the ending could feel like mm -hmm. a bit of an anticlimax. But I thought that was quite a, a bold approach for what this film is really, really about. And as you, as you put it, if it had gone full, full Wick, for want of a better term, then it would have been that over-familiar territory that we've been in before would have played out to expectation. And I think, well, not Fincher's best. This is no Fight Club. This is no Seven. It just proves that he's such a masterful filmmaker. For as long as Fincher keeps 
reanalyzing how we look at genres in every approach that he does and makes beautiful films, I will always sign up for them. And I'd love for him to work with Fassbender again and again in future because the pair have clearly yeah. worked together well. Fassbender together is really magnificent well. in here. Well worth checking out. It was on cinemas for the past few weeks. It's now on Netflix, so everyone should be spending two hours in the mind of a trained killer. So that's the films out this week. Andy, what's coming up over the next week? So at cinemas, there's Hunger Games, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Uh, we probably won't be covering this on the show because I'm not really a Hunger Games fan and I don't think Lee is. No, I, I was out after the... I thought the first one was good. I was out after that. Yeah. However, there is also Saltburn that opens this week, which I've heard a lot of good positive buzz about. Yeah, intrigued about so that. So I'll be hopefully checking that out. And I might check out Thanksgiving, but I'm not promising anything because Eli Roth also kind of turns me off. Um, over on streaming, Now TV and Sky, two treats for you this week. We both enjoyed Renfield. There's a chance to see it on Sky Movies this week. And we did. I thoroughly enjoyed Three Musketeers D'Artagnan. Uh, so if you've not seen that, there's a chance to check it out before the follow-up film lands next month. Netflix, best Christmas ever. Yet more festive tosh. Uh, this time with Heather Graham, Brandy and Jason Biggs. Um, however, on Netflix, we've got our eyes on this animated series that lands next week. Scott Pilgrim takes off. That I'm looking forward to. Over on Disney+, Plus, Dashing Through the Snow on Disney+, Plus, the dirge of festive movies, Trucks On, and this one stars Ludacris. So, yeah, I'll be avoiding that one. I won't put that in your stocking this year. But what we will put our stockings on is uh, Apple TV Plus's Monarch. We've been waiting for Monarch for so long. So next week, expect yes. us to be talking more about some TV shows in the reviews than actual films, because there's two absolute treats on the horizon. And that, folks, that's well as done for this week. I, I, I made it. I made it to the end. I'm, I'm surprised. <laughs> well We're done. One piece. I'm proud of you. Um, thank you. <laughs> it's time for neat things. Stuff that we've liked. Stuff that we've loved. Stuff that we've enjoyed. Stuff that we've done. Hey, you name it. I've got loads of neat things for this week. I've got more than one. I'm going to try and condense them into one big neat thing. But Andy, go first. So uh, I'm in the world of comic books. I'm in the world of Marvel comic books this week. Colour me interested. I read uh, my comics through Marvel Unlimited, which means that I'm a couple of months behind the titles. So I've now just started on The Fall of X, which is the, the direction that the X-Men titles are taking from this point onwards. It begins in Hellfire Gala 2023 and spins off across all the X titles and the whole of the Marvel comic world eventually. It's a new yet familiar direction for the X-Men brand after the last few years of the Krakoan era, which, is, which posited mutants as the saviors of mankind, benefactors of healing powers and technological marvels that will benefit all of humanity. In the background, while all of the Krakoan era has been taking place, an organization known as Orcus had been playing their part well, becoming heroes and protectors of humanity, especially during the Axe story events when they took down a celestial that threatened mankind. But behind the scenes, they're run by AIs that are intent on world domination and eradication of mutant kind, and maybe even humanity itself. And Nimrod and Moira X are key players within there. At the Hellfire Gala, which was intended to see in a new era of prosperity for humanity, Orcus struck, creating a false flag event in DC as a distraction before wiping out all humans at the gala, killing many mutant protectors and forcing the rest into exile, and then telling the public that mutants had staged a massacre there, turning humanity against mutants once more. Their years of benevolence, a smokescreen for the mutant menace to infiltrate society. 
this has kind of set X-Men back to being the socio-political analogy that it used to be and that I used to love. And the parallels with our current political climate and world climate are being drawn once again. And this is where the X-Men for me has always shone. The last five years, while the X-Men have been like a force for good and everyone's loved them, has never felt right to me because that's not what the X-Men should be. The X-Men should always be these people who are persecuted for their powers, despite the fact other people yeah. with powers are seen as heroes. And I'm glad that they've used this event to reset things back to that kind of status quo. What began as a joyous rebirth for Kamala Khan, because she came back from the dead in this issue of the Hellfire Gala, she was going to be presented as the first mutant inhuman to like, you know, really show this is what, what everyone can get. This is everyone can be something special. It suddenly became the X-Men's darkest hour in decades. And it's one that they may never recover from. The X titles now at the top of my pull list each month again. And it's all because of what's happening with Fall of X. Jump on board Fall of X with Hellfire Gala. It's 75 pages and it's an absolute treat of a title. I've not read the X-Men for, for many years. I, I, I kind of gave up on it ooh, probably about 10 years ago. I've just picked up a couple in between us to take a look at, uh, but I'd, I'd love to get back into it. I, I need a, a jumping off place. Maybe this is where I, I get back into it. So I am, I am deeply interested. So my neat thing, so many to talk about over the last week. Birthday week, went for Japanese food and was served by a robot. <laughs> How neat was that? All the friends who decided to spend uh, Saturday night with me, loved them all, enjoyed it so much to be part of that. And to put the icing on the cake, um, a new Beatles song. It has been a fantastic week. We've got the new Rolling Stones album. We got a Beatles song. We got the beautiful little film that's accompanied it, which you can find on Disney+, Plus, which made me cry. We were talking about stuff that makes you cry. That made me cry, I think, just seeing those people together uh, and what they've done. Is it the best Beatles song ever? No. Is it important that we have a Beatles song in, in the world right now? Yes. The fact that they always played with technology and they, they're doing it again, uh, as you probably know, the legend, they had to wait to use AI to be able to separate John Lennon's vocals uh, from a piano track because he just was a, he just did this as a home demo and um, the Beatles were always at the forefront of pushing technology for music. It's so nostalgic. Even now, after 60-odd years, the Beatles are the fastest-selling vinyl single of the 2000s. I think that's that's the latest thing. So it's just so much joy. There's, it's a dark world out there, but robots serving you dinner in a Japanese restaurant, playing to your friends and the Beatles. How neat is that? Absolutely neat. And that's us done for this week. And we'll be back again next week uh, for another show. Andy, as ever, thank you so much, my friend. Thanks. It's great to see you and, and the missus last night. Yes, sir. Um, it was a lovely hopefully time. I'll see you in the week. Yeah, um, I'll let you know if, uh, if I'm going to be watching anything that might be of your interest. And if it works for you, then uh, we shall maybe talk about a film together for once. Um, Two weeks on the run. Yes, Can it's we do better this? When we do it together. But we'll at least both be talking about Monarch and Scott Pilgrim next week. Let's be honest. We certainly will. Because what we do in life echoes in eternity. But I don't want to be crying all night. <laughs> you don't let Andy cry. Don't make him. Cry. Don't make Andy cry. Is is our our <laughs> watchword for this particular episode? Wouldn't like me when I cry. <laughs> there you are. Found this week's title. <laughs> Oh, you're just suddenly disconnected. You've gone 
You've gone dark. I'm still here. Your camera's gone off. <laughs> Has it? Okay, I don't know why. <laughs> it's very weird. Oh, right. I'm looking at a round circle. It's pulsing at me. It's a very freaky. Yeah. You can hear me, though. Um, I can hear you. Yeah. All right. Keep um, going. I might come back. Wait, uh, she's going through her teenage years, so at some point, the emotion of horny as hell is going to come up. <laughs> I think, well, that's what I mean, yeah. <laughs> and that's for the X-rated version of Inside Out. <laughs> um, I saw The Fablemans the other week. Absolutely loved it. A little over long, that's, but I loved that's it. That's a film that made me cry. Oh, okay. Fablemans made me cry. We're talking about Gladys. 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 We're talking about Gladys. Talking about Gladys <laughs> Ridley Scott's Gladys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 